Hello, my name is Charles Solomon. I'm a critic and historian of animation. My name is Eric Calderon. I'm going to call myself the beat cop of this esteemed group of people. You know, I'm just an animation producer who's worked in the game for about 25 years. I spent about 15 of those 25 working with a variety of Japanese talents. So it's really my pleasure to offer you a street level view of what it's like working in Japan and also how this film relates to animation and film in general. Hi, my name is Mary Claypool. I wrote the English dialogue script for the animated feature Ghost in the Shell. At the time, I wrote it under my maiden name of Mary Mason. Hello, I'm Richard Epcar. I'm a voice actor, director, and I've done over 600 characters in different uh, anime and animation and games, and I am the voice of Bateau in Ghost in the Shell. And welcome to our audio commentary for Ghost in the Shell. One thing that I think gives this movie such impact is when you think back to what the situation was in American and world animation in 1995 when it came out. Disney was at the height of the Katzenberg, Schneider, Disney era. They'd had the whole string of unprecedented successes with Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and Lion King. In 1988, Akira had come out. My Neighbor Totoro had been released in this country, which were beginning to generate some real mainstream interest in anime outside of the hardcore fans whose domain it had largely been up until that point. And then Ghost in the Shell comes along and kind of cements that growing fame and interest and builds on it. This is also the year that a little film called Toy Story came out and would begin the reign of computer animation and gradually supplant drawn animation in the United States. But at this time, animation meant drawn animation and generally lavish musicals, comedies from Disney and the studios that were attempting to rival them. Then Akira and Totoro and Ghost in the Shell offer a completely different vision of what an animated film can be with different kinds of action and violence, characterizations, stories. Drafting off what Charles just said, you know, 1995 and 1996 in the world of television animation was also a pretty shockingly different time than it is now. I mean, at that time, I was actually working at MTV Animation. This was three, four years before South Park. We were doing Beavis and Butthead, and American Animation was going from mostly kids programming from the 80s, you know, and 90s, and then suddenly we were going into the heyday of adult primetime silly-looking, badly-drawn cartoons. So, again, like what Charles said, the context of the environment, especially of America, was really unique. And then for Ghost of the Shell to come out is crazy at this time. Yeah, I mean, The Simpsons had only debuted a couple years before. That's correct. I remember watching this in the theater, and at the time, no one thought animation could do this kind of thing. I mean, hardcore fans... I myself had gotten Akira on Betamax at a Star Trek convention. I watched it only in Japanese. When this hit the theater in New York, it was a lightning rod. It was a crazy moment in time. Of course it is. The window, shoot! I don't believe it. Thermoptic camouflage. There's the classic scene that none of us can forget. Yeah, that's awesome. It 
1996, I think they released the cassettes on this, and Ghost in the Shell was the number one selling cassette of that year, beating out all of the other ones, which was pretty amazing when you think about it. Oh, this was absolutely a seminal piece. When this came out, I think it blew people away. This was not a cartoon. This was not for youngsters. It was a mature, adult, intelligent, groundbreaking film. And this is, I think, what really woke up the world to what anime was. I'd love to ask you, Charles, because I think from what Richard just said, this was one of the top-selling VHS tapes at the time. What was the market like for home video in 95? Let's put that into context. Suddenly it had been an explosion in American animation. When Disney first tested the waters with animation, they assumed that cassettes were things you would just rent from places like, remember Blockbuster? Oh yeah. <laughs> and the initial release of Pinocchio, the tape was something like 80 bucks. And then they Crazy. discovered that pricing them cheaper, everybody would buy them and Within a year or two, home video had become a multi-billion dollar industry, and they realized films could make, in some cases, more money through home video than they could through their theatrical releases. Apropos of Akira and Ghost in the Shell, I think that's one of the things that made it possible to bring these films over, that the theatrical releases, even today, still aren't where most fans watch anime. They watch it on their phones, they watch it on their computers, they watch it with their friends, but they generally don't go to theaters. They watch it at home. And that just kind of set the model for 25 years of anime. I know we're going to continue on that conversation, but I got to mention the scene that we just saw, that classic shot of her coming out of the water and all those little white chips coming off. I just can't help but compare that to Westworld. Yeah. Yeah, very much. It's a direct line from this visual inspiration even the story yeah i was realizing the other day that ghost in the shell it's like a very good episode of westworld right yeah true westworld was certainly inspired by ghost in the shell right. that's right well i think that's one of the things that makes this film so significant is it has a big part in a cross-cultural dialogue across specific dialogue that you have blade runner influencing akira and ghost in the shell they, in turn, influenced the Wachowskis and the Matrix movies. I mean, look at these numbers going across this text. I mean, this is the horizontal version of the Matrix that we're exactly. watching. Exactly. And then that leads us to the Animatrix and to this, again, continuing dialogue. It hasn't always been successful as when they tried to do live-action versions of Speed Racer and Dragon Ball and, you know, a few others that haven't necessarily worked. But you do see the filmmakers influence each other and cross-pollinating in a way that I think is exciting and stimulating for audiences and is renewing for both the animators and the live-action filmmakers. I gotta say, in watching this opening sequence again, you know, we're getting our first facial close-ups of the main character. I feel like it's taken me a few times to be uh, observant enough to realize how androgynous her character design is. And again, I mean, in the historical context of animation character design, Charles, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't even remember an anime at this time period with an androgynous main character lead. Wow, I'd have to check my timesheet for that, but that is a tradition in Japanese culture, though, where you can have anagata, who are kabuki actors who are male, who right. specialize in female roles, and during the Edo era, geishas would go to watch them to see how a woman of refinement should act and comport herself. So that wow. androgyny runs through or gender fluidity runs through Japanese culture. And in subsequent years, we've seen 
gay characters, we've seen transvestite characters in anime in ways that Western animation really hasn't dealt with them. We're skipping ahead a little bit, but I'm curious that this is not a female cop character that we spend a lot of time doing romantic storylines with. I mean, this is really a cop story more than it is a, a romance, which you might expect from a female cop. When we go to conventions, we talk to a lot of young people, and I think this particularly resonates with them because, as you mentioned, Charles, the gender fluidity, there's so much now gender identification on a spectrum. And I really think that this movie speaks to that. Yeah. And Kusanagi is as strong a heroine as anyone could ask for. She put Shira in the shade and pretty much any Western <laughs> hero that, and even her name, Kusanagi is the sword. Yes, grass cutter, the sacred sword that the sun goddess gave to the Japanese imperial family. Wow. The original was lost at the Battle of Dan no Ura about a thousand years ago, but the replica exists, and that is something synonymous with power, which is Kusanagi. There's nothing passive. She is certainly as positive and active a character as anyone could ask for. I didn't know that about her last name. That gave me a little bit of the chills in a good way because I always saw Kusanagi as a character that was just a weapon of the state. You know, she really is less human and more machine and so much of the commentary is about that. And now that I see her as a blade, really, really opens my mind to viewing this as she's the weapon of the police force. That really is exciting. I never knew that. Does that make her the ancestor, say, of Edward Elric? and right. the alchemists in Full Metal Alchemist, that sure. they are the weapons and the dogs of the state and are partially mechanized. Are they at least her linear descendants? We've lost response. What's happened to the EEG output? It's normal. I'll switch to Cymex mode. In case you haven't been briefed, this is the minister's interpreter. 23 minutes ago, her brain was hacked into through a data line. Foreign intelligence warned us about this. A hacker called the Puppet Master has begun to infiltrate terminals throughout our network. He believes it's extremely likely that he'll target the secret talks that are scheduled with the Republic of Gavel. As a precaution, we put everyone attending the talks under surveillance. It's my suspicion that once he hacked into her ghost, he'd use her to assassinate the key delegates. So how much time do we have before this hacker breaks through her barrier program and reaches her ghost? Roughly two hours. He's using an old-fashioned HA3 virus. After that, we'll have to break the connection to avoid any danger to the system. Bato and Ishikawa are tracking the signal source from their car. Contact them. This scene coming up here, I was really paying attention to the last time I watched it because, you know, this is the first time that she's talking to a fully human character. And so, Mary, I'd like to ask you, you know, because you wrote the English dialogue for this, you know, the Japanese version, when I was watching it, her presentation, her speaking is so unemotional. And she's kind of laying out all this very deep police dialogue and stuff. But what I'm fascinated about is she's just putting on an outfit. So she's kind of multitasking and talking about politics. And this dude in Japanese comes across as like a regular old dude, just like a husband and a truck driver. That's what Togusa is. Togusa is human. He's only had a mild brain augmentation. Otherwise, he is fully 
100% human, and which is why they chose him to be on the team, because as she starts to speak about it here, you need diversity in order to have unpredictability, and that's what makes you strong. And here she gets into a dialogue about how you have to have diversity. This plays later when she talks with the puppet master. And she is, she's very businesslike. She's always down to business. But underlying everything, this is where she's having the questions about her individuality and her humanness. But I do love this little conversation she has with Togusa. I think it's a really underrated scene. I mean, this is one I, I watch over and over again for some reason. Since it's my ass on the line out there, use the Zastaber. Yes, Major. There's something I've wanted to ask ever since I started. Why did you transfer a guy like me from the police force? Because we need a guy like you. Huh? Number one, you're an honest cop. Number two, you've never stepped out of line. Three, you're... Mary, I'm wondering, what about... This must be very difficult stuff to rewrite. The vocabulary is so unusual <laughs> and so specialized that you're finding English equivalents for very arcane kinds of terms, and that must have been a challenge. Oh, you have no idea. The, <laughs> I mean, honestly, my job is made easier by a good translation, and the translation I received was very dry, very literal, single-spaced pages of what they were saying technically, and it was 17 pages of just that. And I didn't know anything about this movie at all, never heard of it, and I had to watch the whole thing over until I got into it, and then I started to get a handle on the characters. I really invest myself in the characters, and I try to have them kind of enter my brain so I understand where they're talking to. But I also talk about how I had a handle on this movie because I aced 10th grade biology, and I totally oh, understood. I loved it, and I understood evolution and species and diversity and survival of the fittest and all that. And I applied all of this, especially to the end dialogue where the puppet master has his fabulous <gasps> Spoiler. Monologue. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I said nothing. <laughs> I'd like to point out here, at least in terms of analyzing this film in terms of story you know where we've gotten so far we're only like 15 minutes in is that we started in the higher echelons of society we started with you know the elites and the politicians and the police and then we make this gradual transition down from police to worker and then down here right to the people who deliver the trash i just love the way that he paints all pictures of society nothing shit here comes richard yeah Eric, something you're bringing up is that, like Akira, you have a very clear distinction between the towers and the splendors of this city and the slums where most of the action unfolds. That's and correct. that those towers are impossibly distant. They're not only far away physically, they're far away socially and psychologically. Ah. And people like this guy with his trash can never cross those barriers. Batu can the major can, but they're special. Amazing, yeah, that's correct. So Richard, that's you getting in there, so it's been how many years since you played this character? How old is this movie? <laughs> <laughs> it's been in 95, right? So right. Uh, it's been a while, but I'm still playing Bateau. That's the cool part about it. I'm in the new version of it on Netflix right now, so that's nice. Do you have to adjust your performance because your character is partially cyborg? Do, what? sort of mental preparation do you go to become a character who isn't entirely human? 
I don't think I have to adjust him to be cyborg. I think you just become the character. I've been, he's like an old friend to me at this point. You know, it's like putting on a very comfortable suit playing <laughs> this character. He's just great. I just become him when I do it. So it's really nice. But he's also a very physical character later yeah, he on. Is. He's been, how do you project that physicality if he's running and dodging and shooting and punching? You have to stay on your mic. <laughs> Those are all, you know, voice actor tricks that you know and you learn and you do that stuff. But I wanted to address something really quickly about you were talking about how the major's androgynous. But, you know, it's interesting to me. The thing that really got to me about this movie was that Bateau is, I believe, deeply in love with the major. And uh, mm, yeah. I think it's an unrequited love on her part, but I think he would love to be with her. He's always very protective of her when he's with her and he puts his coat on her and he's very tender with her. And I think he really has feelings for her, but it's interesting to me that it's been unrequited all this time. I think you're 100% correct. You know, after watching this a few times, what I think is interesting that Memra Oshi does to the audience is actually present Makoto in a very highly sexualized manner. But that's our perception of her. She doesn't see herself as a sexual creature. And the great thing is that there's all these shots of Bateau looking at her and then kind of turning away shyly because she, she's not afraid, lovingly. She's not afraid to be naked. She's not afraid to bear herself. But he feels complex looking at her because she's a sexual creature to him. But she's a sword to herself. When she goes um, diving, he's clearly concerned about her. Mm. Right. Perhaps she's so cyborg, she's not aware of her body in that way. I agree. I agree. And she has a very complex relationship with her body, you know, because it's machinery mostly. It seems like a love-hate relationship, really, because she is very much in tune to who she is as a human, but she needs her body, and she doesn't quite know who or what she is. This scene is just so epically memorable. And then starting at this point, one thing I think Mamoroshi does incredibly well, which is a little bit funny to talk about, is he is so good with guns. Yeah. Like, I think his, his understanding great. of them. Yeah, that's right. And his placement of the weight of that gun and the kickback. And, you know, the fact that that first guy puts it under his arm and you see his feet slide backwards just from the power of that gun. I mean, he is a real, real gun expert. It's and I think very it shows realistic. Up in his, very realistic, very realistic. And again, does that make him kind of the ancestor of Spike Spiegel? Oh, for who's sure. Who's also, you know, a master shot and who uses the gun so effectively. Yeah, but Spike Spiegel is taken directly from Daisuke Jigen from Lupin the Third. Yes, that's true. That's the line for him. A little comment about Bateau is that the character developer for Ghost in the Shell, Hajime Shimamura, based Bateau on the Minotaur from Greek mythology. Wow. wow. Interesting. Yeah, look at the I way it moves. 
his body language and his silhouette. And he's bullheaded. Yes. <laughs> Bull just yeah. like pause me. Here. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I want to pause here. I think the thing about this film, the more that I watch it, there's so much establishment of the city and characters moving through it is kind of like circulation. And I think uh, one of the fascinating things about him as a director, and this is a film, is that the movement of people and their existence in place is so much of what the story is about. And we're always watching people moving through that city and how they have their little roles and our characters are cutting through to solve the crime. And, you know, to me, it's like white blood cells, you know, looking for a virus in the human body. Huh. Well, I think that's also true of the Pat Labor movies, that yeah. he makes the city almost another character. That's who Bato and the Major are interacting with as much as the individuals, as the city and its structure. Look at this. This is just this imitated is great, forever. Yeah. Yeah, this is born identity before before it was born. If they had just done a, a live action movie of this, I think it would have been a huge hit. <laughs> I understand Oshi based the city on Hong Kong because he wanted the chaos and the richness, the lush visuals, even though it's supposed to be Japan. But that's a great backdrop. I could watch this movie a thousand times and never see the same thing twice. Yeah, For the Pat amazing. Labor movies, he did a lot of research on the older parts of Tokyo oh. that were being replaced as he was making the movie and all those pipes and the grit and the rust and the encrusted minerals on them all, you know, again, suggest that this is where the lower echelons live and are stuck, that Bato and Kusanagi and the rest of the section can pass through there to the other section, but these people can't. This is the world they are stuck in. I mean, it kind of goes without saying in terms of like, you know, Japanese animation versus American animation, but the attention to background detail, the realism of background detail, as opposed to like a stylized foreground character. It's just what I've always loved about Japanese animation, whereas, you know, Americans are trying to usually, at least classically, do simple backgrounds and complex characters. This is the reverse. I'm not sure I would agree with that entirely, but there's definitely a difference in style. Aw, out of ammo. Huh? <laughs> I love this scene. Me too. <laughs> I love this scene. And look at how he's muted the palette here so that you're focused entirely on the action. You've got oh, You're totally right. You're totally right, Charles. Even with the signs, they're faded, they're worn, they're sunburnt, they're peeling. The apartments behind it are gritty and grim. So your eye is focused exactly where he wants it to be. And he's the only color in the shot. Yeah. Yeah. yeah you're totally right. You're totally right. I stand corrected. <laughs> The more I watch, you know, Mamoroshi's body of work, and especially here, it's just incredible to see the kind of realism he puts to things like choreography, to things like action that live action directors are imitating and have imitated since this movie came out. So it's crazy that he's teaching live action directors how to do better fight scenes. Well, and that's also true, again, of the Pat Labor movies and 
the cities that he has people moving through, the world he's creating. I just said dickhead. You guys missed it. I heard it. I heard it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the best part of the movie. (laughs) Where you were born. Don't you have any happy childhood memories? Do you even know who you are? Ghost hacked humans are so pathetic, it's a shame. And this poor bastard's been hacked pretty badly. Enter after the passengers have gone into the building. Squad B comes in from the rear, and the rest of you go through the front. Mary, how was meeting Oshi? Was that an experience? Wow, it was an experience. It was interesting, considering I knew nothing about him or his work, and here I am, this new ADR writer. I'd only been writing a little over a year, and they put me on a plane and sent me off to Tokyo with a box full of manga to read. That was it. <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. Back when you get on the plane, they handed me a letterbox with all his manga said, read this before we get to Tokyo. Okay. Wow. So we went into the meetings, and he spoke through an interpreter, of course, and I interned to him. And he was very stoic. He didn't smile. He didn't frown. He was very stoic. He never addressed me. And he was very coy in some of the questions I had. When I had a question about, like you'll see in the backgrounds, the Basset Hound. I did not know anything about. And I kept asking him, and he would just shrug his shoulders like, I don't know. And I thought, what? Later, at the very end of the You mean like he didn't know whose dog it was? Right. He he just (laughs) shrugged his shoulders. Okay. And at the very end of the meetings, everyone is saying goodbye and bowing. Everyone's starting to leave. And I said, Oshi, I'm not leaving Japan until I find out what the dog is about. And he shooed everyone out, and then he crooks his finger to me and makes me go into his back's inner sanctum office. I thought, what? I just want to know what the dog is. And we go into this office and there on the back wall is a collage of like a thousand photos of his basset hound. Oh my God. <laughs> and, and here's a man who has not made any emotional gestures whatsoever. He breaks into a grin and tells me, she just have puppies. <laughs> you know, what's really interesting about his dog is he put the dog in innocence. I I know, that was Bateau's dog. Yeah, and if you look at Innocence, everybody, the people are becoming more mechanized. The uh, robots or cyborgs are becoming more human. And actually, the only thing that's the most human in that movie is the dog. And Bateau is expressing all this affection for the dog. Yeah, the most natural. He's the most natural. accept it. Yeah. (laughs) Right? Because everything else has been altered, you know, it's just, and that's kind of what we're looking forward into the future, actually. Exactly. And Mary, when I met him, this was a couple years later, when he hadn't directed, he had produced Jinro, uh-huh. which I think is in some ways kind of a descendant of this, too. Mm-hmm. I also found him to be very low-key, understated, stoic is a good term, Certainly not a bubbly, upbeat kind of, no. of uh, person. <laughs> he was very quiet. I met with him uh, two years ago. As I said in the beginning, I worked in Japan for about six years. I've been working with Japanese animation directors for about 15 of my 25 years. And, you know, they're, of course, come in all shapes and sizes. But to everyone's point, he is one of the less emotive people that I've met with. Wow. And it's very, very difficult at least for a non-Japanese person to read the body language of a Japanese director, much less a very introverted and intellectual person like Mamoroshi. I mean, I was talking to him about 
Blood the Last Vampire, which he wrote and kind of helped kind of bring to life. He actually wrote a novel of that story afterwards, which was all like, you know, about the biology and science of recovering and destroying dead bodies. Wow. It just almost like took Blood the Last Vampire and said, let's just talk about the medical side here of how do you hide bodies. So, so fascinating how he can kind of take a subject matter and then deep dive into something specific. I mean, even the scene we just saw, you know, with this whole mind wipe that you know, they spent all these minutes explaining the complications of how a mind was erased and how, you know, what is a mind? Isn't it just data like a hard drive? Right. You and know, deep dive is a good segue here. Here we go. <laughs> Speaking of deep dive, <laughs> this was very interesting to me, the fact that she was a cyborg, but she loved to go into the ocean and just chill out in there. And to me, that was fascinating. Once again, this is where Bato, I think, really shows his affection and concern that she would put herself at such a risk. Yeah. Hey, Charles, you know, we haven't talked about this too much, and maybe you know. I mean, how do you compare the film to the original manga? Because we're talking about stories sometimes and talking about influence. What is the manga in comparison to the film? The film is in some ways darker and more serious that Masamuni puts in little asides. Like, there was a chase sequence here, but it's too much hassle to draw, so we'll just cut to the next scene. And... One thing I don't think you find a great deal of in Oshi's work is humor, but he takes what interests him from a pre-existing property. He did this again in Pat Labor and in the one Beautiful Dreamer movie that was one of his first. He builds a world according to his vision of it, and the manga provide a jumping-off point, but he takes the elements that clearly that interest him and expands them. And if some things fall by the wayside, they fall by the wayside. In the TV series, Richard's work then, the standalone complex, Kamiyama brings back the robots, the Tachikomas in that version. And that's another really interesting juxtaposition, going back to Mary's point about his interest in biology, because if he's suggesting that humans are moving towards a shared consciousness through the web. The Tachikoma began as a single entity, and now they're moving towards individuality. Yeah. They're AIs, yeah. Yeah. And they like Richard's character, of course, because he gives them the good oil, and That's they're afraid right. of the major. <laughs> the I have the good oil. stuff, yes. <laughs> you always drinking the good stuff, Richard? I have the real stuff, not that synthetic crap. <laughs> oh, huh? In those deep, dark waters... When I float weightless back to the surface, I imagine I'm becoming someone else. It's probably the decompression. You want to get out of Section 9, is that it? (laughs) Bateau, how much of your body is original? Hey, are you drunk or something? I love this whole scene because this is where... We actually see the side of Kusanagi, which is mostly at peace. I mean, she's drinking a beer. She just took a deep dive. And you realize that in this strange area out here in the middle of the night, this is the only place she can find comfort. It's a beautiful, beautiful story. But I was fascinated by the fact that he was in love with a cyborg. I thought that was really interesting to me. It just shows you that love a lot of times is mental. You know, mm-hmm. it's it's it not is. just necessarily physical, it's mental. He's seeing the real her, not just the cybernetic body. Yes. And it's interesting, speaking of the bodies, in Solid State, uh, Solid Society? State Society, yes, 
she has a closet filled with bodies, like we have clothes, so she could change her body at will and be a completely different person, which I thought was really interesting. That was like carrying that idea to the next degree. You don't have to be female, yeah. One point that they make about her, though, is that she is an industrial design because they don't want her to stand out too much. At one point, she sees another version of herself because as a cop and an undercover figure, she can't be too conspicuous. Yeah, but that said, Charles, look at the outfit she wears. I mean, it's it's yeah. like what police officer would wear that outfit, you know? <laughs> <laughs> she has the body of a doll. Yeah, she does. Yeah, she's kind of a cross in some ways between a centerfold and the Terminator. Centerfold Terminator was the original title. I guess they didn't like it, so... <laughs> <laughs> but you also don't see her blink. She's like a doll. You have those dead doll eyes and purposely don't have her blinking much if you watch her face. In image in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. That was you, wasn't it? He also tends to hold on still artwork of her yeah. in a way that I think makes you more aware of that, that he'll move the hair a little bit as he is here, but the expression doesn't change, yet it doesn't go dead. He keeps the little bits and pieces around her moving so the scene stays alive, but that doll-like quality that you're talking about is emphasized by that stillness. I totally agree, and also, you know, the way that they do the iris on her and also the dilation of the small part of her eye, just it comes straight from like a doll that would creep you out sitting on your shelf. This music is very haunting. I, just, I always love this music. He always picks very interesting music. Ken Kawai. Yeah. Kenji Kawai, yeah. This is a very ancient Japanese folk music and he uses it again in Innocence. Once again, when you're moving through the streets, but that time with that opulent Chinese-inflected parade that's so beautiful. She sees herself, by the way, I love the shot. I mean, this whole montage is legendary for animation directors because what I think Mamoru Oshii does is he just lets Kenji Kawai's music and this haunting, constant visuals of just the city itself give you kind of this musical interlude, one, in between complex story points, but also to remind everyone that the city is a main character. We live in this body, and look, here's the trash of it, here's the heights, here's the lows. I think that's amazing. You don't see that in American animation, generally. Right. I mean, I totally agree. You don't have poor characters in American animation. Well, and I think that's why this stuff's so popular. I think because this pushes the envelope and you know a lot of the american animation is very formulaic and this is just very different and asks a lot of very hard questions that our animation doesn't ask and i think it was interesting in the beginning of anime that anime tried to copy a lot of our stuff and now we're trying to copy a lot of their stuff right? so it's kind of come full circle that cross-pollination continues but his suggestions of the city and his background artists work you feel the rust and the grit and looking at parts of the city you want to like clean under your fingernails which is great
Geary is just letting the visuals and the music carry the story beautifully. It's a mark of a brilliant director here. He's not letting his ego intrude with anything that isn't at all unnecessary. It's perfect. You know, we haven't talked about where the story is at this point, but what's interesting is that, you know, what we just got out of was Kusanagi giving this very complex speech, her true feelings about her uncertainty of humanness, her sense of self, her existential crisis, and who is she, what is she, and what is to say that I am a person or a soul. The entire thesis of the film is in that speech, and then Oshi just lets you think about it. You know, yeah, for, yeah. for seven minutes. Well, she brings that up again in a few minutes when she talks about never being sure of the real me. And this is a theme that runs through certainly post-war Japanese culture. At the end of Yukio Mishima's Sea of Fertility Tetralogy, one of the great works of Japanese and world literature, at the very end, the main character suddenly realizes he's not sure of his own existence. If you read Haruki Murakami's novels and short stories, again, there's a tenuousness to the reality. Satoshi Kon told me, he said that in Japan, which is a country with multiple religions and so many gods and spirits, they don't subscribe to that kind of solid, objective, unshatterable reality that we do in the West, that it's more tentative, more subjective, more subject to interpretation. Beautiful. Visual sensors are back online, and its body functions output is normal. Next time, either call in or don't show up if you're going to be late. All ready to connect, shall we? This is the Puppet Master. This is a body that has been autonomously freed from Megatech, where actually Motoko's body was created. And no one knows what prompted this body to suddenly get up and walk out. The Puppet Master has hijacked this body, walked out, and it's been hit by a truck. And now Section 9 has taken it, and this is where they're running a scan on it, and they find a trace ghost in it. This is where we find out that the puppet master is in this body. Geez, a 1995 wireless data transfer? I mean, come on. We're heading toward that. I know, we are. It's speculative fiction, always speculative. This is before anyone ever heard of the cloud. It's foreshadowing and what's frightening. And what I love about Ghost in the Shell in particular is it talks about the morality of technology and the use of that technology. And that technology in itself is not inherently evil or good, but the people that use it and how they use it and for what purposes they use it for. There's so much philosophy. In some ways, as you were saying, Richard, it's prescient in the era of WikiLeaks and Assange and what is Facebook going to allow or not going to allow. Yeah. You can see foreshadowings of that. And Kamiyama, who was a kind of a student of Oshi's and would go on to do standalone, talks about one of the recurring themes in his film is Technology should improve human existence and life, but it doesn't always. And it's also growing exponentially faster than we are, and I, I think in our ability to cope with it and handle it in certain ways. I hope we don't mind telling everyone, but I mean, it's great that we're talking about kind of the modern state of technology. But for those of you who are watching and listening to this, this is actually not even a normal audio commentary record because everyone you're listening to right now is actually in their homes with remote setups and we're all watching this movie remotely 
on a live internet feed. I mean, I can't in my career have ever even done something close to this. So it's a high tech audio commentary that could not have been possible a year ago. Richard, again, are you now recording your lines remotely for projects? We're doing a lot of stuff remotely now. It's kind of bizarre to tell you the truth. But yeah, I've been uh, doing a lot of games and a lot of animation, a lot of dubbing stuff just like this remotely. So it's kind of crazy. You're like six months away from having, you know, four holes in the back of your neck just uh, recording directly that way. My wife put one in there already, so. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I understand why we're all so concerned by this case. Huh, Togusa? Assume he's from the outside. He may or may not be in that brain, but one thing's sure. Somebody had to hack through some high-level barriers to put that body together, and then send a program with a ghost line on it. But that would draw attention to itself. Where is the logic in that? Jeff isn't the issue here. Togasa, go catch up with Ishikawa. He's going through the... Something else you mentioned, Richard, that if you're giving those lines in isolation, voice dubbing in anime is usually done by individuals. How do you create a sense of rapport like between Bato and the major or even between Bato and the chief if you're never with that person. Well, you know, it's not undifferent, Charles, and what you do in the booth. We record one actor, one character at a time. This is why you have to have a good director, because the director has to give you the context of what's going on. And you're reading the stuff, and then when the editors and everybody, the mixers, put it all together, it should be seamless and sound like we're having conversations with each other and not sound awkward or weird. But that's the job of the director to kind of give you the context. But the only time you record with the cast is when you're doing original animation sometimes and even then you don't always do it sometimes you do it like a radio play where you'll have everybody in there but generally everybody records one character at a time so we're all kind of used to that at this point you might be fascinated to hear you know two things you know when i was working in the japanese anime system you know i found out to my surprise that most of the voices are recorded at the end not at the beginning so there's no pre-record and then the general culture is as Charles said, actually, that everyone's in the same room all the time. That's the normal way of doing it. Yeah. So for them to record individually, unless for just like a final pickup, it's very unusual for, you know, the show that I did in Japan, Afro Samurai, was unusual because they wanted to have English timing, but they then did in Japan, and then, you know, Samuel Jackson recorded. So I was the only English-speaking guy in the office, so I... This terrible little voice had to record every single character in Afro Samurai in advance. You were the scratch track. But every character, the men, the women, wow. the kids. Like you were everybody. the scratch track. It's terrible. About the only American animation that was done that way were the old Fleischer shorts. Yeah, that's right. They did post-sync. Popeye did it too, didn't it? Yeah, that was Fleischer. The oh, that's Fleischer, the, you're right. The black and white Popeyes, the Betty Boops. And very often, they would ad lib. Mae Questel told me that, you know, they would just start playing with what the scene was and do things with it. And particularly in the Popeyes, you'll hear the voice actor just throw in these little asides kind of under his breath. <laughs> That's awesome. So, hey, so Mary, I want to go back to you for a second, if you don't mind. We're kind of on the subject of dialogue and characters. I mean, Richard's right here, but did you have a favorite character to write? I do love Modico because I love strong women. And I didn't know really anything about this, but I own her. I just love her. 
and I put a lot of myself into her, and I'd like to think she imbued a little bit of herself into me. I made her strong, and it's funny, that dialogue exchange she just had with Bateau was a very difficult scene I had a lot of trouble with. And in that scene, it's pretty important to show the relationship with Bateau because he's grounded. He is her rock. And she's going on and expressing her concern about, is she human, is she not human? And he just goes on, and I made up a line that said, you look human, people treat you like you're human, so stop with the angst. And then he walks out and he goes, it's just bullshit. I love that. I had him say that to her just to kind of give her a metaphorical slap that stop, you know, everyone thinks you're human. So I do love her. She's my favorite. I'm glad you brought that up because I think when I think about Ghost in the Shell, the first movie, especially in relation to the second, you know, when I watched both of those movies when I was younger, I remember finding that the second one, they felt a lot less like cops. They were very philosophical. There was a little oh, yeah. more speechy. Are you talking about innocence? Innocence, you know, so much more of a philosophical thought piece. And this one, I felt like there was a balance, you know, in that some characters were just talking about what is clear and present danger in front. Some characters were like really out there in philosophy and deep conversation. And, you know, somewhere like street people. There's a diverse group of cast of characters in this. And, of course, my next favorite is Bateau. The relationship the two have had the most fun and dynamic to it. And they, of course, are featured the most. And then the puppet master steals the show. When you were saying, Eric, that Bateau is her rock, he's also the voice, in many cases, of common sense. Yes. Right. Like, why are you getting in the water when, if something bursts, <laughs> you sink and you're gone? And... Again, Richard, is it difficult to keep him from not being a goody-two-shoes or a father figure who's lecturing her? How do you find a balance where he's sensible yet still daring in his own way and, as you pointed out, he adores her? How'd you had that crush? He's just basically a really good guy. He's a good cop. He was in the military. He's very grounded. He has a very dry sense of humor. But he's got a really good heart. You know, what I loved about him and what I really connected with him was he's just tough as nails, but he's fair. He'll do anything he can to prevent something from happening that's bad, but he'll be fair about everything he does. I really love the character. For me, it was impossible not to love this character and feel an affinity with him. He has a soft spot, which makes him all the more appealing. Exactly. He's a bodyguard. He's a, he's a really loving bodyguard. He really is, yeah. That love for her to me was fascinating because when you think about it she's little more than a, a machine you know so but it's her mind that he's in love with it's just interesting the whole thing was a very interesting take on all this stuff i don't think we've ever seen anything like that before and what's nice is the complexity that both masamune and oshi bring to these characters that they're not one note they're not thin they're very complex and something, bouncing off what Mary was saying before about Kusanagi's toughness, if you look at many recent anime features, whether it's Your Name or Weathering With You, Mirai, Summer Wars, Napping Princess, we are getting heroines in Japanese animation who are more complex and more layered and more individual than their American counterparts, that they don't have to be posters for girl power Although, again, you can't find a stronger figure than the major. But they have doubts and fears and insecurities that I think deepen them and enrich them. And we can talk about them in ways that we might not talk about the heroine of Storks or, you know, a, a number of other recent American films. 
that the characters don't have those nuances. And I wonder, can you talk a little bit about writing those and finding these sides to characters that we don't have in this country, it would seem? And at no time does she ever flout or even address her own sexuality. She's just a being. And one of my favorite movies of all time is the movie Alien and Aliens. I love the Ridley Scott's character, Helen Ripley. I don't know if you know, but when they first wrote that script, it was a man who was the main character. And Ridley Scott said, no, make it a female and don't change a word of dialogue. And I thought their strength, it doesn't have to be a woman dialogue or a man dialogue, just strong dialogue. And this is kind of what I went into this with, because she is a powerful, smart, intelligent being, not just a woman, but an entity with her own brain, her ghost. I'd love to talk about the flip side of that, too, because right now we're focusing on our Maquis and Puppet Master, and especially as the younger person watching this, the androgyny of Puppet Master, but with maybe a stronger feminine sensibility just in the look, you know, this long, flowing blonde hair. Do you see Puppet Master and Mary, you know, especially because you were doing the interpretation, are the dialogue between Puppet Master and Chief, are they complementary to each other? Are they similar? Do they oppose? The dialogue with Aramaki? Oh, sorry, not with with, uh, Motoko. Oh, Motoko. No, I love this. This is just a body that the Puppet Master happened to hijack. So he is just intelligence. I love him. And do you see him as not kind of a non-binary, not neither male or female? Does it have a gender? <laughs> he no, he's completely non-binary. There's no gender at all. But they did get the buttery voice of Tom Weiner to voice the puppet master. And you know, you can't help but think of him as a masculine figure because of the voice, but no, he's just an entity. Just an intelligence. I would think that would be an interesting challenge to write because Our gender, our bodies are so much a part of our identity, Mm -hmm. creating the words for a character who doesn't have that, who exists as electronics coming together. And he's born from the sea of information. So what is he really? Is he digital? Is he analog? Is he information? What is he? And I think that's part of what he recognizes in Motoko is that she's got the shell that she can't really embody and embrace fully, but she has her soul. And that's what I think attracts him to her and what he ultimately tells her, that's what I'm seeing in you. That's what I'm connecting with. I'd like to give a little shout out to Kevin Seymour, who was the director of the English ADR. He passed away in 2014. He loved the genre, and there was no greater aficionado of this particular genre. But uh, he was also my mentor, who is the one who insisted I write the English dialogue for this. So I want to thank him for that posthumously. Yes, and I thank him also for bringing it to America. Right? Well, he brought it to the studios to have it dubbed. I think he was foremost in that. The Quint Lancaster name that you see along with my name is actually Kevin Seymour. He wrote under many noms de plume. He did not write the script, but they put him in there, and I don't care. I would share anything with him. That's nice. I'd also like to give a shout-out to Kevin Seymour. Uh, he cast me in this movie and in this series, so I'm uh, eternally grateful to him for that because Bato is one of my favorite characters that I play. I'm still playing him, and it's the gift that keeps on giving, so I thank him for that. I thank him for bringing this and many wonderful animes to America and exposing us to this wonderful art form. Thank you!
I've always liked this moment because just a great cop scene moment. Put a slug in there, make it look like it was a miss, but you know, use that as a tracer. And like, I always remember that philosophy aside and depth aside, what makes this really fun to watch just at the bro level is it's a good cop movie. It is, but it's got levels. Yep. I'm moving in. I'm submitting a formal complaint about this through the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Report to me as soon as you found the puppet master. Intact, you understand? Bodies are a dime a dozen. We'll get him another one from Megatech. Chief, Kusanagi here. Tokusa and Bato tagged the kidnappers and they're in pursuit. By now, they must be on the R25. What's going on? If you were monitoring, why didn't you intervene? Take it easy, Chief. If we grab him now, we'll lose our chance to finger Section 6. What? Someone's using the same therm-optic camouflage as mine, Type 2902. It's only used by our people, Rangers in Section 4 and by Section 6. I see. So Section 6 forces the Puppet Master to enter a cyborg body. Through Megatech, who happens to be closely aligned with Section 9. It suddenly demands asylum as a life form. Then, for some unknown reason, Section 6 steps in and pulls some kind of shit. Picking up on something Mary was saying, I think the only other character that comes to mind who exists in the same way that the Puppet Master does would be Vanamond in Arthur C. Clarke's City in the Stars, who's pure intellect. Interesting, yeah. You know, who has no physical being. And as you said, this is a body the Puppet Master has acquired. It's not an essential part of the character. It's just a vehicle. Yeah. What do you think about Aramaki? He's not really like a often talked about character, but he's got a real job in the series and he really is a connective tissue. What do you think about that guy, Mary? I actually really like him because I went on to write more about him in the subsequent shows. But he's like the crusty old boss. And I get the feeling <laughs> that, you know, he's been around the block. No one can pull the wool over his eyes. He might be old, but don't mistake his elderliness for slow wittedness he's sharp he's smart and everyone respects him i found it kind of refreshing it's like you sometimes want to stereotype the boss as the bad guy or the whatever but he tries to move the politics the best he can and he's the non-physical character and he's got the backs yeah he's their shield he's what keeps the politicians the outside forces from interfering with their work or from harming them. I think it's like of the original Nick, Nick Fury. No, I was just going to say oh, Nick you Fury. Oh, yeah. sorry, Mary. I I still, yeah. No, man, no. I love that. I love that we're on that same wavelength. Yeah, yeah. that's exactly right. <laughs> that is great. I was thinking Lou Grant, but... Oh, <laughs> oh no. <I'm> right. <laughs> hey, Mayor. Yeah. <laughs> but what would have become of Bato and the Major if the chief weren't there making sure the department runs, the department is protected, the department is doing its job and isn't being interfered with or kept from their functions. Well, we see what happens in 45. They become mercenaries, basically. So, you know, that's what happens. Spoiler alert. <laughs> or we also have Section 6. They might try to infiltrate Section 9 with one of their own leaders, and who knows what wrong could come from that. I know about Section 9. What's Section 6? Section 6 is another group that's supposed to be part of public security that works for minister of um foreign affairs yeah foreign affairs and this is what is happening is that there's some deep sabotage going on this is very miami vice i gotta say <laughs> that soundtrack that's right yeah this is where bateau has a drink and really thinks about that crush yeah oh i know <laughs> it's also a bit of akira that once again he can move through that city but he is not a part of it he will never be part 
of the people who live in those glittering towers and who shop there and eat there. I think that's why they have those images of the plane flying over, like you're never going to be a passenger on that plane. You're going to be here on the ground. This always freaked me out. You know, all the girls that work for Aramaki in that thing are just like the exact same character design. Probably some of them are cyborgs. That's, that's why what they I thought. Yeah, I was like, they oh, are. he's got this little team of typists working for him. Section 6 has a sort of rivalry you expect between two branches of a police department or the police versus the sheriff or versus the highway patrol. Right, they're supposed to be on the same side, but... Six is pulling some shenanigans here. Like the CIA and the FBI. Ishikawa, what is it? I've been diving around in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs net. I think I found some juicy morsels for you. I'll switch to an encrypted channel. Okay now? Well, here's the scoop. This guy is one of my favorites. I mean, this I love Ishikawa, yeah. Ishikawa is so great. He's just kind of like the good hacker. And uh, it reminds me of the film that I really also like called Rujin Z. Rujin Z. If any guys have seen that, it's a no. oh yeah, it's a great anime where a bunch of people in an old folks' home hack a automated bed that tries to get its owner to the beach. Oh, I'm gonna watch that. <laughs> wow. They get it to do that because I think it's either police or military thing, and the old folks outsmart the military. Yeah, that's right. And They're turn old it folks to hackers. their own ends. It's so good. So Ishikawa, just like this, like I got my green sweater, I got my little man cave. What do you need? I'll look it up on the internet. I just, I love this guy. <laughs> love this guy. He's yeah, great. No, he's a great him. character, yeah. He's also, I think, maybe an ancestor of Daru in Steinsgate. He's kind of the ultimate hacker. Right, right, right. Or the uh, hacker character in Kamiyama's Eden of the East. Oh, I love Eden of the East. What a great series. See, that's a great example of using technology for good or evil, because like hacking, for example, hacking... If you have someone like him who's doing it for good reasons, it's helpful. But then you have all the hackers that try to hack into everything and destroy everything or steal money or do whatever they do. Explain why they went to such lengths to snatch the body from Section 9. If the puppet master revealed this to the world, there'd be one hell of an international stink. Then it wouldn't be a simple case. I got to point out one great thing about animation, especially with how you pose and present a character. I mean, what Memoro Oshii does here is he always has this guy with his hands behind his head in this kind of relaxed pose and like that body language is unlike any other character and he's so disheveled and unshaven that chill just cracks me up every time because everyone's serious and they get to the hacker and he's just like lounging they continue this into a standalone complex with the whole team having some unique personality and a unique ability and they didn't show it in this obviously but i love that they do differentiate the characters you know i think japanese animation always does a better job of that and i think you know charles was bringing up kabuki earlier and i always look at body positioning and movement styles of characters they're so much more sharply defined in Japanese animation, where in Americans, they're just pose to pose, scene to scene, but they're not necessarily cutting a silhouette that defines who they are. I'm not sure I would agree with that, but in Kabuki, you have that tradition of the pose that you strike at the end of a movement with a very powerful fixed expression. And I think you can see some of that influence on Japanese animation. And in fact, when I talk to some of the directors who work in Japan, we sometimes think of a director as, oh, I'm timing everything, I'm laying all the shots, but there's some director, quote unquote, in Japan who actually direct because they know how to draw the main character the best. So the storyboard process, the writing process, decentralized, but if you can land that main character, draw him in a way that everyone knows who he is in every shot, you kind of can be upgraded to a director in the Japanese anime world. Interesting. Wow. 
Meanwhile, all hell is breaking loose on the screen. Yeah. There's no mercy. Bateau doesn't hesitate. But I mean, this shot again, this scene, you can almost see this in season three of Westworld. Yeah. Where it's like there is a moving transport and an ambush of high tech people. That's literally like an episode. Yeah, it is. Christ, what a mess. You didn't have to go that far. Oh, uh, hey! Take those assholes away. You just said asshole, Richard? I did. I said asshole. <laughs> And I'll say it again. I really enjoy writing profanity. <laughs> I do, too. I think it's great. You know, and that's another thing. You don't hear that in our animation, really. You don't hear uh, language. Right. You don't hear that in Pokemon. As a person who speaks decent Japanese, one thing that really cracks me up is that insulting someone in Japanese is not like a body part like, you know, we do. Like, you know, I think we think it's funny to call someone a body part. How do they do it? There's like abstract adjectives. So, you know, it's like, you are stupid. You are a younger person, you know, and it's, it's, <laughs> That's it's an funny insult. to just, and it, it's great. It's so, it seems so abstract and so non-threatening to us, but to them, they're like, what's funny about that part of your butt? I'm like, asshole's funny. <laughs> I think some of it is similar to French where it's more the lack of respect yeah. with which you speak to that person, you know, the level of politeness you use for them. Totally agree. Is the insult. It doesn't matter you what are you inferior say. cheese. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's just that you don't acknowledge that they deserve the respect of a more formal title or a more formal form of address, and that's a grave insult. So here we are in the first Matrix movie. Right. I love this whole end scene. You know the story that the Wachowski brothers actually brought this into the studio, mm. this yeah. movie, and showed them the movie and said, we want to do that in a real-life action movie. And that's how they got the green light to do Matrix. I've heard that story. Some of the things I love are in the backgrounds in this. There's that enormous tree of creation. Oh, I love that, that part. I think you see mirrored in Full Metal Alchemist. It's something he used in Angel's Egg, that 1985 film yeah. that Oshi did then. That's a really surreal animated film. I don't know if you've seen it. It's kind of a... There's like no dialogue, isn't it? Like a couple lines? Very little, if any. Is it the Tree of Life, like the Norse Yggdrasil? Is that how you say it? There's a little bit of Yggdrasil in it, but Yggdrasil, there's also the idea of a biological... Evolutionary evolution. Yeah, and how yeah. The, the various phyla relate to each other. There are also some really cool fossils in the background that look like some of the ones that you see in the British Museum of the sea creatures, like the ichthyosaurs and the plesiosaurs. They get shot up, but they're cool fossils. This is like a natural history museum that's been abandoned. But what a beautiful location for a climax of a movie, because we're talking about that which is extinct and that which is coming next. But Mary, you were talking about how Oshi was thinking about going into the seminary. So I think it's so interesting. Apparently, he's really fascinated with Hindu and with Judaism and all these other things because he puts a lot of those elements in all of his movies. A lot of religious elements. The closing words of the film come from the first Corinthians. Exactly. Amazing. How often are you required to write that for animation? Yeah, it's so bizarre. And then there'll be a shot here soon where the thing's shooting up and you see the tree of life from Judaism, which is really interesting.
one of the things that always made me sad about the Matrix comparisons is that, you know, of course, all these shots and all this style was in the Matrix, but for me, the takeaway of this scene was so sad. It's really just a character that is never, ever going to win this fight. And that sad music, but the relentless effort, getting to the point where she jumps on the tank, I felt this is an emotional scene. It's very much filled with human passion, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, and it's filled with sadness and gravitas, but you go to the Matrix and here we are in like techno land and we're shooting up innocent security guards. It doesn't have the same element of pathos in it that this yeah, does. Yeah, that's right. No, and I think so. there goes the There's plesiosaur. There's the dinosaur. There goes the and dinosaurs. the ichthyosaur. That's great history thrown away. <laughs> I think the animation gives a unity to the world. See, there it is. There's a tree of life right there. Yeah, look at that. Look at that. Just hominous man. You don't care about evolution. Whereas in the Matrix, they're playing so much with the timing of the characters, with the wire work and the speeded up and the slowing down actions that have become so cliched in action movies now. Whereas with everything being drawn, you have a unity to the world and the characters that it seems of a piece in a way that I don't know that much of the Matrix does to me. Yeah. So I worked for Studio Gonzo during the um, production of the Animatrix, you know, and we did the first one, which was the History of the Machines, that was Mahiro Maeda. I love all the shorts, but the ones that Mahiro Maeda did, I think, were my favorite. I like the Watanabe. Oh, the, yeah, Shinichiro Watanabe's is really great. This made me want to cry when me she. Me too. Uh, me too. When she, her, her. Oh God, this just destroyed me. She just completely disembodies herself. But it's great because it shows her lack of preciousness to the body. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, and her focus on the mission. And I really love that she doesn't scream or cry or complain. I mean, she's just tough as nails, even as her head's getting crushed. Ugh. Until... Richard rides to the rescue. That's right. Nice, Richard. With my standard issue big gun. That's right. That line was not in the translation. I know. Mary, did, Mary <laughs> the, Ang the Angst line and the standard issue big gun. Those are all Mary's contri contributions. You did that? That's a great line, Mary. Well, the, the, whatever they had, that was the last line I wrote for the entire script because I kept coming back to it. The line that he says just doesn't fit, and I thought, what am I going to write? So... She says, what did you use? I couldn't come up with anything. I said, standard issue big gun. I thought they'd throw it out, and they kept it. I love it. It was a great line. Yeah, it's I love that line. It's become a meme. <laughs> no, it sums it up beautifully. You were doing Marvel movie tone before Marvel. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> well, Bateau is kind of a smart ass. I figured he'd say that. Look at that face. You're not an asshole at all, Richard. You're really, you're a nice guy. You're a nice guy. You could land a plane on my nose, though, for God's sake. <laughs> terminated. We will engage the second stage of the plan and proceed with the destruction of the target. Sniping squad confirming targets. First objective, Project 2501. Second target, Matoko Kusanagi. Both are And again, remember, 25 years ago, computer animation was still very much in its infancy. This is the year of Toy Story, and yet Oshi is having to create a separate reality that is the world of the data and the web and illustrate oh, that, that and distinguish it from the regular reality, something that Hosoda will do in Summer Wars with more technology at his disposal. 
but we forget how minimal the use of CG was at this time that he's using to suggest that cyber world of data. By the way, if I, uh, sorry to go a little different direction, that last shot that we just saw is amazing how this museum becomes a church. Yeah. And how, you know, it like just, a cathedral. A, the relig- yeah, cathedral shot and these two characters lying as they are. I mean, it's just a beautiful, the sacrificial, sacrificial victims. victims of what's to come next underneath the tree of life that's been shot up by bullets. I mean, Visual metaphor and visual metaphor, come on. Although the arched forms with all the glass reminds me of 19th century Victorian kind of architecture, the Crystal Palace. I've engaged his field of vision, normal function. Can you hear me, Bateau? Perfectly. He's engaging my vocal function. And And he's now inside. My code name is Once again, how minimal is the coloration here? That everything has been leached out. You get Bato's hair is yellow and everything else is gray. And you're focused on the major by that use of color. I love this color palette. Some of this more grounded, realistic anime, you know, like the stuff from Kenji Kamayama and Satoshi Kon and Mamoroshi. It just takes a whole different approach to coloring an animation that comes more from film. It's like properly color-corrected live-action footage, not like point-click-and-fill colors. Tokyo Godfathers and Millennium Actress, Han uses color to suggest a coldness in the grays and the bleached-out greens and the winter scenes, whereas this doesn't feel so much physically cold as alienated, that all the color has drained out of the life and... These people are at the very fringes of their society. I was so fascinated working in Japan that, you know, when we were working on shows and the early cuts would come back, I would see some of the shots and I would be like, oh, that's not bad. But the director would say, you know, what are you kidding me? We haven't even begun to do the layering of effects of visual affectations on top of the cartoon colors. And, you know, in American animation, especially in like the comedies and the primetime shows, you know, point, click, fill, you're pretty much done. But, you know, what they're doing is all this filtering and fogs and all these layers of effects on top of the drawings to create the kind of look you're seeing right now. The blooms, the vignettes, those are all done after all the ink and painters and colorists are done. And I remember when writing this, they were not done animating because they released it at the same time in Japan as America. So there were long slugs in the print that I had to come back and work to. It was really a quick on-the-fly project. I'm really amazed that it came out with the quality it did considering the time deadline. It's incredibly last minute in Japan, which is nutty. (laughs) We think of animation as kind of an organized process, but Japan in particular, having been there, is so chaotic. I've had production managers with like, you know, Betamax video final versions driving at top speed to a broadcaster to make it in time for delivery. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's also true, though, in America. I got stories from the people who did Rocky and Bullwinkle that they would drive to the network with the print still wet Mm -hmm. from the lab. Sadly, it has not changed at all. It's still that way, Mary. So there's a lot of... That's right. It has not improved. Yeah. (laughs) Unique entity. We will both undergo change, but there is nothing for either of us to lose.
Target sighted. Unit 02, target in Right sight. now, the Puppet Master and Motoko are melding, and they're just about to be fired upon by the helicopters above them. They're just finishing their conversation and combining. Finish that download. Get that download. He's about to tell her what he wants to do to merge. And once again, Bato is there to defend her. Yep. Yeah. And the puppet master has stayed his hand. He's about to unplug them, and the puppet master won't allow him to do that. Why are they merging again? He wants to create a new life form with her and wants to merge to create this new evolutionary entity that has never been realized before. I never thought about this now. I mean, I'm I'm a huge, you know, Marvel nerd. I mean, I, I currently work for the Rus- I work for the Russo brothers. You know, they're part of the companies cool. that we own. And I always forgive Ultron because I like Vision. <laughs> I do too. And it's like now I'm looking at like an early version of like the Vision story. That's very true. But you still haven't answered my earlier question. Why did you pick me? Because we are more alike than you realize. We resemble each other's... Once again, it's another Arthur C. Clarke story that this brings to mind, which was his dial F for Frankenstein, where he suggested that at some point, all the electronic devices were going to be interlinked to the point that they would achieve consciousness and cognizance. And that's sort of what the puppet master is. And now by fusing with the major... Yes. I mean, how much greater would the perceptions of the puppet master be he would have a knowledge or it would have a knowledge of the world we can approach with all the different sensors and all the different measuring devices and all the different outlets bringing data in i forgot about feathers did you guys remember i don't remember feathers i do do. and it's really a direct tribute to angel's egg where he has the angel symbology and the feathers and the tree of life and there we go there's there's the angel there it is the showers of feathers are not uncommon in anime there are lots of series and films that have had those just as you'll have cherry blossom petals falling at key moments why do you guys think he decided to put a vision of an angel right before the merging. Is it a moment of death? Is it what I see before I die? Or is it transcendence? I think it's what Mary was talking about before, that he has an interest in other theologies. Yeah. And coming from Japan, where there are multiple religions are just accepted, that he can continue to explore. Why does he end with the quotes from the New Testament? And it's Christian, seems to have a fascination with Christianity and all of the symbology that's rich with that as well. And now we have this entity that can speed through the internet that we can't even imagine. And you still have a physical presence in the real world. So now you've got the best of both worlds. And the crazy thing is here we are with a Buddhist-like theme of rebirth. Yes. And reincarnation. Exactly. And now Bateau's got a babysit. (laughs) (laughs) She's got the same eyes. Here, her hair isn't moving. There's nothing to make her seem alive. This is much more a doll. If anything, she is less alive than the Major was as the Major. He gets into that whole thing about dolls and inanimate objects and animate objects and innocence. He talks about that a lot, actually, in there. It's a big metaphor on that one. Yeah. Yeah. You want to clue me in? 
Where'd you get this body? That's the only thing I could find on the black market. It's not my taste, to be honest. It's a little young. Richard, nothing against you, but those pants are a little bit high. It was the 90s, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> the pink shirt. I'm not sweater. crazy about the top either. To that tell you. roll neck, oh, baby. He's got a lot of trapezoid, though, so yeah. you know you can't really fit in anything in that one. No, that's true. <laughs> it's, just, it's like a bodybuilder's outfit, you know? Got to wear the big pants and the big oversized No one ever sweater. accused him of being a fashion maven, you know what I'm saying? Oh, flash dance. Yeah. Look at that tiny beer in his hand, too. It just yeah. dwarfs that little can. Nice and neat. Everything's accounted for except your old shell. Well, I think that about covers it. Well? Somebody's got good taste in interior decoration. Is this your safe house? Yep. You know, you're the first person to ever come There's here. also the sense that the Major is different now. She's less alive, she's less vital. She's ready to leave him for other adventures. The, what she does. The fighter, the cop that we've been following through the film has now moved on to another, perhaps another level of existence or consciousness. And now she's going out into the world to be whatever she's going to be. She doesn't have to have a job anymore. But it's also shown in the animation and in her physicality that there's much less movement than he was using before. But let's look at that lava lamp. I love that to the left. <laughs> Wait, yeah, what were, you, what were you guys talking about? Sorry, I've just been looking at the lava lamp. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. By the way, Bateau, again, such a sad character. Like, he just can't win. Yeah, no. that's true. That's very true. Well, as the Major is continuing to evolve and move on, Bateau has reached a stopping point. He can't transcend the way she can. Maybe eventually if he's becomes more of a cyborg he can but he seems to be his personality has limits in a way that would prevent him from moving to that other level even if he wanted to and there's no suggestion that he does yeah i might be totally incorrect on this one so please correct me charles but i'm getting like a lancelot vibe almost from bateau you know the guy who can get so far but not get the holy grail yeah or even to go back to his religious interest to moses yeah. That he may behold the promised land, but he will never go there. And then Galahad, you know, if you were to take the other one, you know, Major is Galahad. Which is why they talk about sacrifice. The puppet master talks about how sacrifice is part of evolution. Right. And that death is important. It's talking about that cycle. Well, we're definitely sacrificing now, so hopefully there'll be some <laughs> evolution. <laughs> you can even trace that back to something like the uh, Haiki Monogatari, the great epic of the medieval Japanese Civil War, begins not like the Iliad with a description of a superhuman hero's wrath or the Song of Roland with victories, but with the notion that even the greatest of conquerors and warriors are like dreams in the night. They vanish. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. And the Major is doing that. She Beautiful. is dust before the wind, and her existence was brief and ends. So musically over the top here, we're in a different kind of world almost a modern i mean at the time i guess we had like early techno this feels almost like late vangelis yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting that you know kenji Kawai. i mean he's changed so much from the middle to the end so we got to the end so what's everyone's post thoughts i mean you know 25 years after this came out i was telling my friends i saw it three times i was too stupid to get it when i was younger i got it more now and now i go oh my god it's one of the greatest films of all time it really is i've always wanted to see a sequel with the puppet master and motoko i wanted to see what might progress from their union mm. 
it's an intriguing thought. Well, I mean, the franchise still lives on. There's still more happening. Do you guys think we'll get more Ghost in the Shell? Is it still a relevant story today? There is Ghost in the Shell. There's a new one right now, 45 <laughs> on Netflix. <laughs> he plugged. Good job. Good job. Yes. <laughs> Watch it, it's great. I think 25 years later, we're all struck by how prescient a lot of it is, that this is much more the web that we know now. It didn't exist then. He foresaw it. Yeah, it's amazing. This is supposed to be the near future. This is supposed to take place in 2029, 20, like nine years from now. And wow. that is, I'd like to know where we will be in 2029. Will this all be old hat? Let's do it again in nine, guys. Guys, let's do it again in nine. Okay. Let's get together in nine. All right. <laughs> Sounds okay, good. Sonny. I'll still be playing Bateau by then. So <laughs> Grandpa Bateau. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, Mary. I appreciate that. You're welcome. <laughs> I just like to say real quickly that when we first worked on this show, I was just really struck by how interesting, unusual, exciting, and futuristic this whole thing was. I loved everything about it. I thought the the whole movie was great. I loved the action. I loved the relationship between Bateau and Kusanagi. And I just thought it was so interesting and so different from anything I had really seen before. And I thought, this is going to be just an incredible... You know, I work on a lot of projects. And a lot of times you just go in and do the work and nothing happens. But I, this thing in particular, I just thought, wow, this is going to blow up. And it did. It became huge. And when you work in the beginning, you see it only in piecemeal. I didn't have visual except for a time-coded copy. I didn't know what the actors were going to sound like. I'm writing a script. And it wasn't until we saw the actual movie screened in the theater that I realized, wow, this is greater than the sum of its parts. And I love science fiction. And I really felt the chills from beginning to end it's like this is what i worked on wow that's all i could say it's a movie that's influenced so many other authors and filmmakers and people who love the genre it's just stunning that's what makes any work of art important whether it's a film or a painting or an opera does it influence other works and this certainly has and i think the conversation's been a lot of fun i've written about the work of my other three panelists this is our first time meeting so that was fun. I just want to say that after watching it 25 years later, I think people always think of Ghost in the Shell as a great anime. They always remember it as a great piece of Japanese anime cinema, but it's a great film. Yes. And I hope it will always stand up as a great film and people as the years go by will watch it as such and not watch it because they like anime or they heard it's anime watch it because it's a film worth observing and thinking about. Excellent point. That reminds me, Chuck Jones used to say, a great animated film is first and foremost a great film. Yeah. yeah. Thanks everyone for listening. I uh, hope you enjoyed that. Oh, so, so.